Take note of the questions on the screen. They'll be up there uh, throughout the, the sermon for our, our time of uh, corporate response. Uh, it's good to see you all this morning. I'm, I hope that you are well. And if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to uh, Ezra 6 if you're not all already there. And we'll get started there in, in just a moment. Last week, looking at uh, chapter 5, we saw in, in the narrative throughout Ezra how everything that was shifting toward bad oppression and, and discouragement and sin in the people was all of a sudden flipped around to, to good. That oppression and, and, and discouragement that led the people into sin and apathy the, the rebuilding of the temple, which has kind of been the theme of the book so far, has, has completely halted. The building of the temple had stopped for, for over 15 years. And then in 520 B.C., God sent his word through his prophets Haggai and Zechariah to draw his people back to himself. The Word of God was the decisive factor, and the preaching of the Word of God was the decisive factor that changed God's people back to Him. They were once scared, apathetic, sinful, to now obedient, courageous, and repentant. We, like them, need the Word of God. It's the priority of His people. And this morning, as we look at chapter 6, we're going to build upon one of the points that we made last week. One of the points we made last week is that the preaching of the Word of God roots us in the truth of God, the truth of His character and His nature. And the preaching this morning from chapters, uh, Ezra chapter 6 is going to lead us into that same point, that same area, that we would have an increased confidence and trust and joy in God because we look at his character and his nature. This morning in our, in our passage, just to set the context for you when we read it, this is, the, this is the reply letter back from King Darius back to the governor of the land beyond the river. So here's a few things that I want you to take note of as we, as we read, just three of them. I want you to first notice... Cyrus's decree is quoted here in what he says the Jews are to do and to receive. Second, I want you to see what Darius decrees on top of what Cyrus had already decreed. And third, I want you to take note to what or who Ezra attributes how everything gets completed. And that's an important one. So let's look at Ezra chapter 6, and we'll start reading in verse 1. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which it was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt. 
the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stone, one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and the silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatinai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethbanzani, and your associates, the, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Yet, or let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding that you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue. The tribute of the province from beyond the river and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep, or burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests in Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it. And his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put his hand to alter this or to destroy his house, that God, the house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bonzani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet of Zach and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. There are three parts to this passage. First, in verses 1 through 5, we hear how Darius actually hears the letter, the petition, by the, the governor beyond the, the river, and he takes action. He actually takes the advice of the governor, and he goes and he searches out, looking deep into the records of the, of the nation, having to go to another city, which happens to be their, the summer vacation home of the king. 
that, that particular city. And, and he, they look and they search for the records to see what King Cyrus really did say back in 538 B.C. And what he discovers is that Cyrus really did make this decree which allowed the people to go back into the land and rebuild the temple. Now, that's something we already knew if you were here back in chapter 1 because that's the beginning. That's, that's, what, that's where the, it starts out is that Cyrus becomes the king and he lets the people go back. But he didn't know it. And they find the decree that Cyrus issued and they let them go. And he finds that not only it's for the rebuilding of the temple, but the cost of the whole project is to be paid for from the royal treasuries, from the kingdom. And all the treasures that were taken out originally from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar back in 586 BC were to be returned back to them to be used in the new temple. So this is what he finds, and this is what Darius does. And what's interesting here is, is Darius under any obligation to honor a decree of another king 15 years ago? I don't think he is. But look what he does in verses 6 through 12. This is part two. Look at his response. And, and what he does in, in his response to, to the letter or the request and then what they find it's kind of almost unthinkable. You wouldn't think that, that a pagan king would, would go as far as he does for such a small, insignificant people. Especially when we see the trend of the book. Darius answers the letter back to the governor beyond the river with favor toward the Jews. By his own decrees and in some pretty amazing ways. He not only reinstates Cyrus's decree, but he, he, he decrees his own to ensure that the temple gets rebuilt with some even some serious consequences if his decree is neglected as Cyrus's decree was neglected. And then we, and then we get to the third part of the passage in, in verses uh, 13 through 15, which is a, a summary of the of the outcome of, of when, when Darius's letter comes back to the governor. Opposition is completely wiped away. He, I mean, the, the, the king says, you will, you will keep away from them. You will let them rebuild in every way possible. And so as the, the temple was being built, the temple was, was prospering, as it says in that third, that third passage there, that third part, that it was prospering through the preaching of the word of God by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And then, probably the most significant event in all of the book of Ezra, and it's what we have been hoping for, it's what the Jewish people were hoping for, is that the temple is finished in verses 15, 14 and 15. In fact, if you look at verse 15, you have a very specific historical date of when it was refinished. But what was the Lord doing in all of this? Why is this temple so important? Why would we go through so many years of struggle and anguish to, 
to rebuild this temple. Although the temple is significant to the Jewish people, as we see in the Old Testament, in the everyday life of Jerusalem and in Israel, the temple was the place where God's people would come to worship him through a complex rituals prescribed by the law. In the big picture, the temple served as a symbol of the presence of God's dwelling among his people. But back in 586, when the temple was destroyed, did that make God homeless? Does God no longer have a place to, to dwell? Of course not. We know from the Bible that the Lord does not need a physical temple built by man to dwell in. Even when the first temple was, was being rebuilt or it was completed, Solomon said it himself. He says, he says, don't you all get too proud now because the Lord does not need a house built by us to dwell in. He doesn't need these things. In the book of Acts, Stephen recounts of the same thing. Paul in Athens says the same thing. Isaiah 66, 1, uh, I think, sums it up well, this idea of the, the grandeur, majesty, and transcendence of our God. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? However, we know that when the temple was built, God dwelt with his people in the temple. In fact, even verse 3 says that the temple is the house of God. The temple is where God became imminent or close with his creation. Where God is known, he's transcendent, but this in the temple represented God's dwelling where he came close to his people. For him to dwell with his people. God was, in a sense, limiting himself to, in his capacities to dwell with man in our capacities to understand. What does it mean? for God to dwell with his people. As grand as the temple once was, and as important as it was for this temple to be rebuilt in salvation history, the temple was still only a preview of a coming attraction. The coming attraction, the, the main event, the, the one that was, that, was, that was fulfilling all of it, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. When the second part of the Trinity, God the Son, would take on flesh and become man, born of woman under the law. John chapter 1. He dwelt with his people in the flesh. And then the sequel, after the coming attraction that would later come out, because the temple would eventually give way to God's presence, not dwelling in a place, but then in his son, but then not in a place, but in the hearts of his people. The New Testament understanding is this, is, is that do you not know, 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and that the Holy, and God's Spirit, excuse me, 
dwells in you. So we see here the, the, the line, the progression that is taking place of the significance of the temple was only pointing forward to the coming of Christ and then the fulfillment of Christ that now God himself dwells in us. We are now the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So this is why Ezra is so important because it is this very small piece that is to remind us that there is a much greater and bigger picture of what's happening other than building a small, insignificant temple back in 520 B.C., completed in 516, which later would kind of get destroyed again and then rebuilt again by Herod. It's all pointing to what God is doing in his people. As Christians, if you are in Christ, you are the temple of the dwelling of God. And we know that by grace, his atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross has accomplished that. But tied up in all of this history is the reality, brothers and sisters, that we experience today what they were longing for, what they were hoping for in the rebuilding of a temple, we experience. Because the Spirit of God dwells in us. I want you to know all of this because this was the Lord's plan. This was the Lord's intent from the very beginning. And he has been working all of this out for his glory and for our good. And Ezra's story is all part of the plan. So what Ezra is showing us here is how God is overseeing the establishment of the remnant of his people according to his word and for his redemptive purposes. That's a big line. And how the Lord's sovereign hand was in the finishing of the work of the building of the temple. And all of that is pointing and part of salvation history. The temple is finished. But by who? Whose decree? Cyrus's? Darius's? Or the Lord's? Isn't that the choice that we have in this world? Who has the authority? Ezra 6, brothers and sisters, is shouting to us today. It is shouting to us today of the glory, the grace, the mercy the comfort and the encouragement of God's glorious providence in history. And he has accomplished these things by his sovereign decree. Just as he said with his word, let there be light. The Lord decreed it, and there was light. So in Ezra, we have seen this word decree come up many times over and over again. several times in our chapter this morning, twice referring to Cyrus's decree, four times re referring to Darius's decree that he made in his letter, and then there was one more. The most important decree of them all that God had decreed. 
In our very first week in Ezra, we saw in chapter 1 that God stirred in the heart of King Cyrus to let the Jews go back into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple because he was fulfilling his promises. Then throughout, we see the Lord's loving, providential care of his people. We see his favor. We see his protection and his provision for his people, even through pagan kings. But this wasn't just about kings decreeing favor instead of oppression, because as the scripture shows us that underneath it, it was the Lord who had decreed it. The Lord had decreed their favor, their protection, and their provision. On on one level, all of these things were according to the plans and the decisions of the efforts of men. And that's absolutely true. But there's an extent to man's decree. Darius even knew that, right? Because if if he he knew there was an extent to his decree, that's why he put consequences in there. To get them to do what he decreed. But from another level, there is quite a deeper decree that's absolutely true. The decree of God. And in God's decree, we see here in this chapter that it brought about gracious, providential care for his people. In verse 6, we see his care when when Darius was convinced by Cyrus' decree He came back to the governor and said, you and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work of this house of God alone. I mean, that's amazing. It completely flips the whole story around, doesn't it? It's It's amazing to me. God shifted him in such a way that it shifted everything for the people. Keep away. Let them build. So now there is official governmental support from the king of their protection from their enemies in the land. Back in chapter 5, verse 5, this kind of sums this up for us a bit because it tells us of how God's providential protection was over them. His eye was over his people. Things happen because God orders them to happen. He orders them to happen before they happen. Orders them to happen precisely in the way that they happen. He orders the affairs of the universe cosmically and in all of our lives specifically. Securing that certainly for us. Securing things of our certainty. Securing our care. Securing our protection. So that other things do not happen to us. Psalm 124, starting in verse 2, it says, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when the people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, when the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the flowers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heaven 
and the earth. This is the providential protection of God over his people. We also see in this passage how the Lord gave provision to his people. Did you see how Darius, when he discovered Cyrus's decree, his intent to provide for the rebuilding of the temple, that, that Darius made his own decree on top of that? He said, moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for the elders of the Jews in the rebuilding of the house. The cost is to be paid to these men in full. And without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute from the province from beyond the river. You know what that means? And not only is everything to be paid for, but everything that they have done previously is to be paid for. It will come out of the royal treasuries. And since you all have volunteered from beyond to river to announce this and let me know, it's going to come from your revenue. It's going to come from you. The cost of the rebuilding was now going to be paid for completely by these people. So you can, you can imagine that after when, when the governor receives this letter back from the king, kind of probably pretty disappointed, and then when he has to be obedient to the king, probably begrudgingly, he goes into Jerusalem to make his first, his first payment or whatever it is. The Jews see him coming, and what are they thinking? They're thinking, oh my gosh, here he comes. He said he was going to come back. They're going to stop us. They're going to crush us. And what seemed to be discouragement and defeat was coming their way turns out to be what? It turns out to be blessing. In William Cowper's hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, he wrote, the, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy. The provision keeps coming in verse 9. Not only are they to pay for the, the treasury or from the treasury, the rebuilding of the temple, but all the sacrifices and more, whatever they needed, they could go and get. It would be like going to Walmart with a blank check, getting whatever you needed at any point, at any time. You see, to the unseeing eye and heart, this is just Darius being generous to the Jews. But to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, the little phrase in verse 14 sounds really big when reading of the favor and the provisions and the care in chapter 6. And what that does in the life of a Christian and a believer and the heart and the eyes that, that, that can see it is that it produces great joy in worship to the God who gives providentially to his people and cares and loves his people. Do you remember this morning when we first gathered and started beginning our service, we read from Daniel chapter 6. That was Darius who said those things. And maybe before all of this happened, Daniel, who was in the court of Darius, stood his ground to live a holy life before the Lord, and he paid the price of being thrown into the lion's den. And God and his might and his strength shut the mouths of the lions. And that response that we read this morning was from King Darius because of what he saw God do in the life of Daniel. God was working in his people, and he saw the power of God. He feared him, and then 
He gives favor to the Jews in Jerusalem. God is working and providentially cares for his people. The second thing that I want you to see from this passage is the providential lessons that God is showing us. The Lord is gracious, he's kind, and he's caring to his people, but even his bitter providence, in his bitter providence, the Lord shows us mercy. And in those times, there are lessons for us to, to learn as long as we are trusting in him. He is sovereign over all things, he, over good and the bad. He is sovereign over all persecution, suffering, trial, and opposition. This is one of those doctrines that many people do not want to accept or believe. But it's truly one that runs throughout the scriptures. Consider the book of Ruth. Consider the book of Ruth where it begins with such heartbreak of a family that experiences the, the bitter providences of God. A family somewhat innocent beside of their sinfulness. They experience the, the loss of everything. There's famine of the land. It rains on the righteous and the wrong. And because of the famine, they are forced to leave Israel to find work and a new way to provide for their family. And then while in a foreign land, all the, the males in their family die in this foreign land. Naomi, who is the, the mother who had two sons, her husband died and then her two sons died. She is stuck there with two, two of her daughter-in-laws. And they're all the only survivors. And things are so bad for her that she even changes her name to Mara, which means God has dealt bitterly with me. But you see in this story, the purpose is not the suffering or the loss, but how through bitter providence we see God sovereignly working for his glory and for our joy. Because what he does in that family is a restoration like only God can do. He restores this family through one of the daughter-in-laws, Ruth, who happens to be a Moabite, a foreigner. They go back into the land, back to Israel. And there the Lord providentially put together Ruth and the kinsman redeemer to restore the family. And through all the bitterness and loss, God was going to bring about through Ruth. And now this kinsman redeemer who, who takes her and marries her and then richly provides for this family, through them God was going to bring about the future king of Israel, the greatest of them all, David who eventually would be overshadowed in the same family by the king of kings. You see, in Ezra, we see God's providential hand of stirring the heart of Cyrus earlier. We see how God stirred the hearts of his people to go back in the land. We saw God's providential care through these pagan kings. And even when they, they, the, the, the people, they were, they were disobedient to to the, to the Lord, they feared man rather than trusting in the Lord. We see God's discipline over his people 
that they would languish in the land for 15 years, being successful in, in nothing, being satisfied in nothing, living in opposition to the people of the land, living in fear and being discouraged, never being satisfied according to Haggai. And why do you think that was? Brothers and sisters, was the Lord's hand in disciplining his people in order that they would hear the word preached and their hearts would be ready to repent and to be obedient to the Lord. And then in that repentance and then in that obedience, what were they going to do? They were going to rebuild the temple. And guess what? God stirred up this governor to write this, these letters of opposition to, the, to oppose the people, asking Darius to search the records. Search the records yourself. And what does Darius find? Darius finds the records, doesn't he? And what does he find that wasn't happening previously? They now were going to pay for the project, not the Jews. So consider what brought about Cyrus's orders to light? Opposition. God's providence to discipline his people brought about what? The blessings of God's people. The opposition only succeeded into doing what? Getting the work financed. The Bible teaches us that God turns the efforts of sin and evil against his people into what? Blessings for them. Satan succeeds. He thinks he succeeds in having Jesus the Messiah crucified only to do what? Fulfilling God's plan to save those who believe in him. Satan sends a messenger, a thorn in the flesh, to afflict the Apostle Paul. And yet it only does what? Accomplishes God's purpose of keeping Paul from being conceited. Even when a Christian sins, the Holy Spirit draws them back to the Lord with a broken and contrite heart to repent. And that brings glory to God. There is no setback. There is no failure. There is no tragedy. There is no disappointment, no opposition, no loss, suffering, or defeat that the Lord does not use for our good and even could bless us and others in ways that you could never possibly even imagine. I wish I could tell you stories from our life, from my life, how the Lord has redeemed some of the most darkest times that we have walked through. There's nothing that happens to us that the Lord cannot use in ways, and imagine, ways that we could never imagine. Imagine Joseph when he was sold into slavery, languishing in prison in a pit, knowing that his own brothers had sold him into slavery, unjustly cast into prison in, in Egypt. Do you think he had doubts of the sovereignty of God over his life? But in the end, he was raised up by the Lord in the court of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And what was meant for evil, and this is what he said, what was meant for evil by his brothers and others against him, 
God meant it for good. This is the providential lessons, brothers and sisters, that we must learn to trust in him and to walk faithfully in obedience. Lastly, I want you to see the, the, the providential confidence that the Lord gives us. Looking back at verse 14 and 15, we see how the, the building of the house of, of God was, was prospered. By the preaching of the word of God, God was using the, the word of God to bring about the, the prospering of, of the building of his people, of the temple. It was under God's decree, as we see in verse 14, which ordered the decrees and the plans and the purposes of man, and it all came about for their favor and their prospering. God's decree was what? to finish the temple. He decreed it. He provided for it. He prospered for it through the means of pagan kings. And he completed it. The Lord has decreed all things, big and small, and yet, brothers and sisters, there is one decree that stands above the rest. And that fact is the decree that, of, that is the, why this decree was made. Because it is pointing toward, building toward, a greater decree that God would fulfill. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his, forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God's decree was to do what? That when the fullness of time had come, to send forth his son to be born, to redeem those who are under the law. The Lord is not just about building buildings. He has been decreed the building of his people, his son, to be adopted in his son. He has decreed this before the foundation of the world. Listen, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, according to the purpose of his decree, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Ephesians 1, 4 through 10. In love, he decreed. In love, he predestined before the foundation of the world the redemption of sinners. And he has given grace and he has given wisdom to be made known. And now the mystery of his will, all the mysteries that we're seeing in, in Ezra, why would he want the temple rebuilt? All of this is now revealed and seen in, in Christ and made known in Christ. And this is such a glorious truth. Ephesians 1 puts 
so much weight behind everything that we do as God's people. But you know, it's easy. It is so easy to feel like the Jews. This is why we shouldn't knock on them so bad in the OT. Because our, we're, we're like them. We're, we're like them. We're always the ones standing on the side trembling. We're always the ones making the excuses why we can't be building. We're always the ones searching our comforts instead of being obedient to the Lord. We relate very much like them. So, so we should relate a lot into this, this building project with them because I bet many of us have looked and thought in our Christian life and just ask ourselves, when will this sin or this temptation ever be beaten? When will I ever stop struggling? When will I ever stop feeling this way? When will I ever really truly feel like I believe? When will this hardship, trial, suffering, opposition, will it ever stop? Will spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible, studying prayer, will it ever get easier? Will loving others and forgiving them and under, living in that with an understanding in this very fallen, broken world be any clearer? What this tells us is that God is at work in each of our lives in Christ. And he is working in all the different ways and all the different places of wherever we may be. And we may not understand all of God's decrees, and we're not going to understand all of his ways of providence. They are a mystery to us. But we know this, that through his word, brothers and sisters, listen, you might need to be the one who hears this this morning, that through his word, he is working out all things for our good, for our prospering, even in our death even in our loss of whatever it may be. He's working it for our good. He's working it for our, our good. I know it may not seem that way, and I know it hurts, and I know it feels lonely, but he's working it for our good. And when we see this temple being finished because God had decreed it, know this, that he has decreed this. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's working. Keep plowing. Keep rebuilding. Keep working. Have faith. Keep reading, keep praying, keep going. Don't stop. And know that from these, the word of God, he is building providential confidence in him. And if he can fix it, rebuild that temple, imagine what he's doing in you. Making us more and more like Christ. Brothers and sisters, as we close this morning and we prepare for the Lord's Supper after our time of response, I want you to understand these things 
that we talked about this morning are not just for the building up of our knowledge and knowledge or our theological advancement. We engage the scriptures not as a textbook of academia, but for life-giving growth. So that as Christians living in a fallen world, we would be building our lives upon the solid rock, the firm foundation of Christ. And when we talk about God's providential care, these providential lessons and providential confidence, we must ask ourselves, do you believe, do you believe that he is also working for your good as well in these things? I hope so. And I want to encourage you as we close from Romans, a passage that I hope that you know well. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things, nor present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. First line of the song, How Firm the Foundation. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that it has its full effect according to your will in our lives. That we would rejoice in you. We would have great confidence in you. Knowing that you care for us, you love for us, and you're working all things out for our good according to your will. We love you. We thank you. We give you the praise and the glory in Christ's name. Amen.